All right, welcome back to the Listener's Commentary. The Listener's Commentary is a crowdfunded Bible teaching effort that seeks to provide what I call blue jeans theology. That is Bible teaching that's clear, down to earth, and right in the context of everyday life. So thanks a ton to those of you who support this ministry so that we can provide these resources for free to people all around the world. In this recording, we are going to be looking at Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 35. It is a significant moment in the story of the early church and in the story of the book of Acts. Paul and Barnabas have returned from the first missionary journey, and that journey focused primarily on Cyprus and Galatia. And in the midst of that journey, their ministry among the Gentiles had continued to expand. Well, they've returned from that journey, and they've been in Antioch, their sending church, Antioch of Syria, now for a while. Well, what happens is some men travel from Jerusalem to Antioch specifically to object to the direct ministry of Gentiles apart from Judaism, apart from circumcision, apart from the law of Moses. And so they make the trip from Jerusalem to Antioch to basically oppose Paul and Barnabas's ministry strategy that had been the the highlight, really, of that first missionary journey as their ministry on Cyprus and Galatia continued to expand to Gentiles. These men contend that unless the Gentiles are circumcised and keep the law of Moses, they can't be saved. Well, Acts 15 shows how the early church handled this issue. It's typically referred to as the Jerusalem Conference. It's a gathering of the apostles and elders in Jerusalem to decide what's the status of Gentile believers. Do they have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be full members of the new family of Jesus? In other words, do non-Jews first have to become Jews in order to fully participate in the blessing promised to Abraham? That's the, the topic. That's the issue at hand, and that's the purpose of the Jerusalem Conference to really wrestle with and answer that question. And it has a lot of impact on whatever they decide is going to have a massive impact on the future of Paul's ministry. What is his ministry strategy going to look like? And is he going to be free to preach the gospel to Gentiles as Gentiles? Now, sitting here 2,000 years later, this doesn't have the same weight, the same tension, the same emotion for us that it did for them. But this is actually huge. Jews have bled and died for their identity as Jews. And circumcision was the mark of the covenant. And it had been that since the days of Abraham, 2,000 years before Jesus, when God called Abraham to himself. And Abraham really is like the first Gentile who's coming to faith in Yahweh. Well, God directed Abraham to circumcise everyone in his house. And when God gave the law to Moses 500 years after Abraham, well, circumcision was commanded as the mark of the covenant for all Jewish boys. This was such a key part of their heritage and their cultural and religious identity that in the time period between Malachi and Matthew, the intertestamental time period, there was a ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes about 160 years before Jesus' birth. And Antiochus Epiphanes outlawed circumcision, and he did so with the threat of death to the baby. Well, guess what? 
it didn't keep Jews from circumcising their baby boys. Jewish mothers still had their baby boys circumcised, and Antiochus Epiphanes fulfilled his threat by killing the baby boys, hanging them around the mother's neck, and parading them through the streets of the city, all basically as a form of saying, I'm outlawing this this practice that makes you guys stand apart, and this is what's going to happen if you do it. And yet they kept doing it. This is how deeply ingrained in their social uh, and cultural identity circumcision is. And so now here in Acts 15, we are a good 200 years after Antiochus Epiphanes. It's about 49 or 50. The Messiah has come in the person of Jesus, which means the blessing of Abraham has been fulfilled and the promises are coming true. Doesn't that mean that everyone then should come into the Jewish faith, come into the Jewish family, like Jesus fulfilled the Jewish story? And so if you want to inherit the blessing to Abraham, shouldn't you be circumcised like Abraham was? And like God commanded uh, the Jews in the law of Moses, shouldn't these Gentiles that Paul is preaching to be instructed to be circumcised and to be faithful to the law of Moses to inherit the blessing? That's the tension, and it runs deep. Now, one other side issue that we need to consider before we look at the chapter in detail is this. How does the events described in Acts 15 uh, connect with Galatians, particularly Galatians 2, 1 through 10? Most scholars over time have identified the events told there in Galatians 2, 1 through 10 with the events recounted here in Acts 15. But... Um, It's become somewhat accepted among a significant minority of scholars to say that Galatians 2 is referring to an earlier meeting, um, usually a meeting associated with the time when Paul and Barnabas delivered the offering to Jerusalem in Acts 11. You can listen to my comments on the Galatians commentary uh, to get more details on that. But here, in short, is what I have concluded. I see no reason to speculate that there was an earlier meeting, and that's what we'd have to be doing. There's no meeting recorded in Acts 11, so we'd be speculating. And I see no reason to speculate that there was an earlier meeting that involved the same people, dealt with the same issue, and came to the same conclusion as the meeting that's described here in Acts 15. The details of Galatians 2, 1 through 10 and Acts 15 are virtually the same. In fact, I have a comparison chart that I'll make available in the study hub. And depending on when you're listening to this, Lord willing, the study hub will be released early in 2022. And so that should be available then. But I'll put a comparison chart in there that helps us just see that what's said in Acts 15 and what's said in Galatians 2, 1 through 10, they're virtually identical. The outcome of the events described in those two places are the same. And there's no meeting mentioned in Acts 11. So it's pure speculation that they had one. So all of that's to say that it seems most reasonable to me to see the events recorded here in Acts 15 as the same as those events described in Galatians 2, 1 through 10. All right, so that's all the setup. So it's about the year 49 or 50. Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch, and here's what happens. Acts 15.1. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, 
you cannot be saved. So right from the get-go, we get the topic. These men came down from Judea. Judea is the large region around Jerusalem. We learn later that they are specifically from Jerusalem itself. And so they come from Jerusalem to Antioch. It's over 300 mile trip. So it's a significant commitment to get there. They make the trip and the, the issue that they raise is unless you Gentile believers aren't circumcised according to the custom of Moses, then you cannot be saved. So circumcision is the focal point of this tension, this issue. But the broader issue really is the authority of the Mosaic law for the Gentile believers. Do Gentile believers need to become Jews in order to be saved? Do they need to keep the law of Moses and fully convert to the Jewish faith, really, by being circumcised in order to be saved? That's the central issue here that's being dealt with in this event. Now, verse 2 says, After Paul and Barnabas had a heated argument and debate with them, the brothers determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them, that means of the church there in Antioch, should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders concerning the issue. In other words, let's have a formal gathering and let's figure this thing out. And so they're going to go to Jerusalem to meet with the leadership of the whole church there, and they're going to hash this thing out. So, verse 3, therefore... After being sent on their way by the church, that is the church in Antioch, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they were bringing great joy to all the brothers and sisters. And so they're making this long 300 plus mile trip from Antioch down to Jerusalem for this meeting. But on the way, they're recounting the events of the first missionary journey. They're doing so, it says, in both Phoenicia and Samaria. Phoenicia is the northern coastlands uh, just south of Antioch as they make their way down south to Jerusalem. Well, the coastlands there is Phoenicia. So they're traveling through the cities there, meeting with the Christians in that area, recounting the events of the first missionary journey, describing in detail, it says, the conversion of the Gentiles and how Gentiles came to faith in God and God opened their heart to believe. And so they're sharing all of this in Phoenicia. They're doing it in Samaria on their way down. And they're bringing great joy to all the brothers and sisters. All of their fellow Christians are rejoicing in the fact that they had such a fruitful ministry among the Gentiles on that first journey. Verse 4, when they arrived in Jerusalem, they were received by the church, the apostles, and the elders... And they reported all that God had done with them. And so they arrive in Jerusalem. The church gathers, including all the leaders. They meet together. Paul and Barnabas, again, do the same thing. They report in on, here's what happened in Cyprus. And here's what happened uh, in Galatia as we preach the gospel. And um, here's the hostility we experienced from the Jews. But here's how the Gentiles opened their heart to, to believe. And they came to faith in Jesus left and right. And so they recounted that story. But, verse 5, some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it's necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to keep the law of Moses. And so, once again, we restate the issue here in verse 5. So the issue was stated in verse 1, and now it's restated in verse 5. And we get a few more details. First, 
The ones that are giving the problems here in verse 5 are said to be from the sect of the Pharisees who had believed. In other words, these were these are Pharisaic Jews who had become believers in Jesus. These are the very same people that Paul was. Paul was a Pharisee in his background, and Paul had become a believer in Jesus. Well, these are the same sort of people as the Apostle Paul. They were from that, that particular branch of Judaism in the first century, and it makes sense that they're struggling with this issue because the Pharisaic party was the most conservative party. They were the ones that wanted to be as faithful and as holy as they could, believing that their purity and their faithfulness was key to the promises being fulfilled. And so they stand up and they, in the midst of the whole church, they raise the issue again. No, it's great that they're coming to faith in Jesus, but it's necessary, they say, to circumcise them and to direct them to keep the law of Moses. They need to be circumcised and they need to follow the law of Moses. Well, verse 6, the apostles and the elders, that includes Paul and Barnabas, as well as then the leadership of the church there in Jerusalem, the apostles and the elders, all retire from the, the large group gathering of the church into a smaller private gathering to come together to look into this matter. And so the apostles and the elders now are going to debate this and hash this out, think this through, and try to determine, okay, how do we handle this? Do they really need to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses, or how do we move forward on this? Well, after there had been much debate, notice that, that's important, verse 7. So the, the leadership comes together, and there's, there's debate, there's mixed feelings, it's not clear, everyone's stating their opinion. There's been much debate. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, and what Peter's going to do is he's going to uh, basically recount the conversion of Cornelius, and he's going to invite him to remember what happened nine or ten years previously when God chose to bring Cornelius uh, into the new family of Jesus as a Gentile. So he's going to recount what happened at the conversion of Cornelius around the year 40, about nine or 10 years earlier. So he says this in verse 7, Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the word of God and believe. This is recalling what happened in Acts chapters 10 and 11 when uh, Cornelius came to faith in Jesus. And so uh, you recall that. Verse 8, he says, And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. And so what he really recalls to mind as the key point here is, look, God poured out the Spirit on them, just as he did on us Jews, us apostles, way back at the beginning. And if you remember the events of Acts chapter 10 and 11, Peter's preaching his sermon to them. The Spirit falls on Cornelius and all the Gentiles gathered with him. They began to speak in foreign languages, praising God, just as the apostles had done way back in Acts chapter 2. And it was clear that God wanted the Gentiles to be saved. And so Peter recalls that and says, God made no distinction between us and them. God cleanse their hearts by faith too. like Not by circumcision, not by the law of Moses, but by faith, God poured out his spirit upon them and made it clear that God wanted Gentiles to be saved and to be part of the family. 
So Peter draws out the implication in verse 10. He says, since this is the case, why are you putting God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our forefathers nor we have been able to bear? What's Peter getting at in verse 10? What Peter's getting at is really, if you're going to impose keeping the covenant of the law of Moses upon the Gentile believers, the whole problem is that we Jews have failed to keep that throughout our history, and that's the reason we experienced the exile we did then. It's the reason we, we still experience the continuing effects of that exile as, as Jews today, right? It's the whole reason God sent the Messiah in the first place. And so if you're going to, uh, to require the law of Moses upon them, we haven't been able to bear that, neither were our forefathers. And so the yoke he's referring to in verse 10 is the yoke of the law of Moses, the covenant of Moses, which the Jews themselves were unfaithful to and which led to them then experiencing the curses of that covenant in the form of exile and everything else, foreign oppression and things like that. So Peter draws the conclusion then in verse 11, but... We believe that we are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus in the same way that they are. In other words, we Jews haven't kept the law of Moses. We needed God to forgive our sins, and he did that through the grace of Jesus. And so we believe we're saved that way. They're saved that way. Why would we impose this upon them? In fact, the Apostle Paul makes the exact same point to Peter, ironically, in Galatians chapter 2, when Peter uh, got caught up in some hypocrisy up in Antioch, seemingly after the events of this chapter, if Galatians 2 is in order and it all makes sense, that Peter got caught up in some hypocrisy. And Galatians 2 actually records Paul's words to Peter and uses them as a springboard for the theological argument of chapter 3 in Galatians. And Paul makes the exact same point there that Peter makes here. Here's what Paul writes in Galatians 2, 15 and 16. He says, we're Jews by nature and not, quote unquote, sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Now, there's a lot packed into that. And again, you can listen to the commentary on Galatians for more on that passage. But it's really the same point that Peter is making here in Acts 15.11. We Jews are saved by grace through faith in Jesus, and the same is true for the Gentiles. And so Peter, in the midst of this debate with the leaders in Acts 15, stands up, recounts what God did in the past, draws an implication and a truth from that. And then verse 12 goes on and says, All the people kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating all the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. And so Barnabas and Paul once again share what happened on the first missionary journey, but this time the focus seems to be on all the signs and wonders. In other words, look, if God didn't want this to happen, then why was God like validating and credentialing our ministry and our message through signs and wonders? Why was God empowering us to do that if he wasn't in it? That's the question. And so they're relating what happened on the first journey and emphasizing the signs and wonders that God had done 
among the Gentiles, that God was demonstrating himself in a powerful way and was helping the Gentiles come to faith in Jesus. Verse 13 then, after they had stopped speaking, James responded saying, brothers, listen to me. So now James is going to give his own testimony. So here's what we've got so far. We've kind of got like exhibit A, Cornelius and what God did there. We've got like exhibit B, all the miracles that God did through Barnabas and Paul on the first missionary journey among the Gentiles. Well, now we're going to get like exhibit C, and it's going to be really the promises of the Old Testament scripture. So we've got scripture itself. So we've got Cornelius, we've got miracles, and we've got James standing up to speak scripture. And remember, this James is James the Lord's brother who rose to a position of prominence there in the church in uh, Jerusalem. He actually became a key leader and he led the church all the way up till his death in 62 uh, AD. This is the same James who, as best as we can tell, wrote the letter of James. And so James, this prominent leader here in the Jerusalem church, the brother of the Lord Jesus, stands up and he's going to recount some scripture. He says, uh, listen to me. And then he says this in verse 14, Simeon, that's Peter, Simon Peter, has described how God first concerned himself about taking a people for his name from among the Gentiles. So he emphasizes Simon Peter said about Cornelius. Well, the words of the prophets, verse 15, agree with this just as it was written. And he's going to quote a passage from the book of Amos. Amos chapter 9, verse 11 and following. Here's what it says. Verse 16. After these things, I will return and I will rebuild the fallen tabernacle of David and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. So he quotes this passage from Amos chapter 9 verse 11 and following that is really about the time period of the Messiah, the time period after the exile, after the curses of that, that come upon Israel for their unfaithfulness to the covenant, God's going to rebuild. He's going to come and rebuild the fallen tabernacle of David, that is the, the tent of David, seemingly the dynasty of David, and then the people of Israel around that. I'm going to rebuild its ruins. But what what really is the key point that James focuses on is verse 17, where he says, so that I'm going to do this so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. It says right there that in the time period of the Messiah, when God, when the Messianic king comes and God restores the fortunes of Israel, the Gentiles are going to be able to seek the Lord and are going to actually be called by the Lord's name. So James draws this conclusion, verse 19. Therefore, it's my judgment that we do not cause trouble for those from the Gentiles who are turning to God. So let's not impose any trouble on them, right? Like, here's, here seems to be the conclusion, James says. The scriptures confirm what we have experienced, that God in the days of the Messiah is going to draw the Gentiles to himself as Gentiles. We don't need to add anything to it, but he is going to have some uh, really some instructions for the Gentiles. So let's not cause any trouble for those from the Gentiles who are turning to God, but verse 20, that we write to them, and he's going to have four prohibitions, write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols, 
from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has those who preach him in every city, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. And so James says, we don't need to impose circumcision, and we don't need to impose the whole law of Moses. Nevertheless, here are four things I think we should uh, tell the Gentiles that they should abstain from. And the rationale or the reason for these four things is stated there in verse 21. Notice verse 21 begins with the word for. It's giving the reason. Why should Gentiles abstain from these four things? Well, they should do it because for, and the reason given is that there are Jews in every city scattered throughout the empire where Moses is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. In other words, we're going to recommend that the Gentiles abstain from these four things out of respect for the Jews. And it doesn't appear we're talking about Jewish believers. We're just talking about Jews on the Sabbath hearing the scriptures read. So these Gentiles are coming into the new family of Jesus and out of respect for the Jews in the cities where they live. Uh, in other words, out of respect for Jewish conscience, we're going to recommend these four prohibitions. Well, then that raises the question, why these four things? Where do these four things come from? If we're going to do this out of uh, respect for those Jews in the city who know the scriptures, it would seem like these four things must derive somehow from the scriptures that are read in the synagogues on the Sabbath. And indeed, it seems as if they do. The best uh, understanding of where these four prohibitions come from is from uh, Leviticus 17 and 18. In Leviticus 17 and 18, what you get uh, are a list of things that uh, Gentiles, sojourners who live among God's people, Israel, here are the things they need to do out of respect for the Jews that they've chosen to come and live amongst. So what it seems like James is recommending here is that uh, he, by way of application and extension, he's saying, what was true back then in Leviticus 17 and 18 for Gentiles who chose to live among the Jews? Let's take those things and apply them to our circumstances today and tell the Gentiles living in those cities, really, in, in order to help the gospel not have any unnecessary offense, let's have the Gentiles living in those cities out of respect for the Jews keep these same kind of four things that are mentioned in our Jewish law. And so they list off these four prohibitions. Avoid things sacrificed to idols. Well, read Leviticus 17, 5 through 9, and uh, it's describing an offering not brought into the tabernacle is an offering offered to a pagan god. We need to avoid idolatry and things sacrificed to idols. Uh, he mentions blood here in Acts 15. Well, read Leviticus 17, 10 through 12, and you get that prohibition. Things strangled is really an extension of the blood issue, and it might be alluded to, or there might be an implication about that in Leviticus 17, 13, but it's really an extension of the blood issue. Because when you strangle an animal, you don't drain the blood out of it. And so for Jews, that was not the right way to uh, prepare their meat when they killed an animal. And then the last one is sexual immorality, all forms of that. Well, Leviticus 18 is all about all different types of sexual deviance and sexual immorality. And so it seems like what James is recommending is 
Here are the instructions in our Jewish law for Gentiles who choose to be part of God's people and live among them. Here's the things that they need to abstain from. Let's take those things and in our cultural context now, 1,500 years since Leviticus was written, right? Let's take them and apply them to our situation and tell the Gentiles who are coming to faith in Jesus, out of respect for Jewish conscience, avoid these four things. So James makes that recommendation, and here's how the the group of leaders responded. Verse 22, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So they chose Judas, who was called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren, and they sent this letter with them. So they choose two representatives who are influential men and important men from the Jerusalem church, and they're going to travel back to Antioch along with Paul and Barnabas, and they're going to take a formal letter that's stating the conclusion of the leadership and the church in Jerusalem. And here's what the letter says. The apostles and the brothers who are elders to the brothers and sisters in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia who are from the Gentiles, greetings. And that's a standard opening for the letter, but notice it's from the leadership in the Jerusalem church, uh, and it's to all the Christians in, in the city of Antioch, as well as the whole region of Syria and the region of Cilicia. And they say this, verse 24, since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have confused you by their teaching, upsetting your souls. In other words, people came from the Jerusalem church. Uh, We learn from uh, Galatians chapter 2 that they actually claimed to have authority from James. Here they're saying, we gave them no instruction. They didn't come with our authority. They didn't come with uh, any instruction from us. And so we've learned this. It seemed good, verse 25, it seemed good to us having become of one mind. So we debated this, right? We hashed this out and now we've reached a a unified consensus, a unified conclusion. Having become of one mind to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Notice how they describe Barnabas and Paul. That's important there in verse 25. Our beloved Barnabas and Paul. So if there's any Uh, attack on Barnabas and Paul's character and ministry, if there's any subversion of their credibility, the leadership here in Jerusalem wants the churches to know, no, they are our beloved. We we are, they're, they're kindred souls with us. And so to our beloved Barnabas and Saul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus. And so it seemed good to us to send some men to you along with Barnabas and Saul Uh, These are men who risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus. And therefore, verse 27, we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. And so they've come of one mind. The Holy Spirit has united them together in this way. Scriptures confirm their consensus. Uh, So here's here's the only thing we're going to uh, ask of you, verse 29, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols, from blood, and from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well farewell. And so they send this letter to them and tell them their conclusion that you don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to keep the law of Moses, but these four things are necessary for you. And I'm sure 
Paul and Barnabas and Judas and Silas could fill them in on the rationale out of respect for Jewish conscience sake because there's Jews who live here and if they hear Gentiles are coming in and you're not even keeping these bare minimum essentials from our law, it'll offend them unnecessarily and it'll make it harder for us to, to preach the gospel to them. So uh, uh, keep these four prohibitions. And so verse 30, when they were sent away, that is, they sent Paul and Barnabas and Judas and Silas back down to Antioch. So when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch and after gathering the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And so they met with the whole church in Antioch. They read the letter and verse 31, when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Ah, oh, yes, the clarity we needed. We don't have to keep the law of Moses, right? Judas and Silas also being prophets themselves. And so they were had the gift of prophecy. Being prophets themselves encouraged and strengthened the brothers and sisters with a lengthy message. So Judas and Silas preached to the church and built them up and encouraged them with a lengthy message. After they had spent some time there, they were sent away from the brothers and sisters in peace to those who had sent them out. And so uh, Judas and Silas stayed there for a little bit, encouraged the church, did some teaching and some ministry in Antioch. And then once they were done, they sent them back to Jerusalem. Now, uh, at some point, it seems Silas must go all the way back to Jerusalem, then return back to Antioch because uh, what we'll see here very shortly is when Paul and Barnabas decide they want to go back and check on the churches from the first missionary journey, uh, Silas goes with Paul. And so he's back in Antioch at that point. We're not told when that happens. We're just told at this point that they traveled back to Jerusalem. And then presumably at some point, Silas comes back to Antioch. So Silas and Judas head back to Jerusalem, but verse 35, Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And so they continued their ministry there for the time being after dealing with this issue. Now, this is a fascinating episode, obviously, and one of the challenges is it deals with a very specific issue that was a major issue in the early church, but it's not an issue that we wrestle with nearly as much today, 2,000 years later. Nevertheless, both the way the early church handled the issue and the conclusion of the, the, the conference is really significant for what happened in church history and for who we are today. Notice that they came together, that Paul, the way he says it in, in Galatians is, I submitted the gospel I preach among the Gentiles to them. Like, here's what I preach, here's my ministry. And then the conclusion is, they extended the right hand of fellowship to me. In other words, that, that Paul's ministry is going to be uh, supported by the Jerusalem church. The focus of his ministry is going to be the Gentiles. And the Jerusalem church is going to basically say, go get them, Paul, go get them, right? Like they support him in that. But it came at great cost. There was the, the trip down to uh, Jerusalem and the trip back. And this was a long, lengthy trip. And then there was um, the debate and the risk of what will they say about my ministry and all that. So, and they, they came together and they, they hashed it out and they talked it through and they debated and they prayed and they listened to the scriptures and they came of one mind together. This is helpful to us to see how they handled this issue. And we can really learn a lot just from their approach. And then the conclusion that they came to is super important. And the conclusion they came to is, you don't have to be a Jew in order to be justified. You don't have to be a Jew and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. 
And Paul discusses this very topic. In fact, it's the whole, really, topic of the book of Galatians. So he discusses it there at length. He discusses it uh, in several places in the book of Romans. And what we learn is that uh, what Paul says in Romans chapter 3 is that now, apart from the law and prophets, and yet witnessed by the law and prophets, God has offered justification to people through Jesus if they put their faith in him. And so the the boundary marker, if you will, the, the entrance requirement, if you will, into the people of God is faith in Jesus. And you can become part of the new family of Jesus through simply faith in Jesus. The Jerusalem Conference concluded, let's not lay any other burden on them than these four things. Um, you don't have to keep the law of Moses and be circumcised in order to be saved. You don't have to become a Jew in order to be justified. The law of Moses had a specific job to do, and it was a covenant for a specific time and a specific people. It's not our covenant anymore. Our covenant is formed in Jesus, and we put our faith in him, and we trust in him for justification. Salvation is by grace and through faith in Jesus Christ.